0: you've been with us, you know what we've been talking about is the Bible itself, removing doubt. And I said, we really have to be more literate on this information than ever before. At least we we need to know where to get our hands on information like this, because we are increasingly living in an age of skepticism. And uh, uh, there's a lot of people increasingly trying to undermine the integrity of Scripture. So increasingly, we are studying the Bible with people that don't have any kind of background in uh in church life or and they are virtually biblically illiterate and so if you have those opportunities and you sit down and you say hey as we get ready to talk about spiritual things let me ask you a question do you believe that the bible is a god book that it god really is the ultimate author increasingly you're going to be encountering people who say "I, i just really don't know and so we really have to start there before we can start discussing spiritual things we have to establish that it is through the Bible that those spiritual things are revealed to us. All right, looks like I can do some advancing. We're not going to really review anything today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to assume that most of you were either here yesterday or the day before. And so this is one of the questions that we really started talking about yesterday. Really the day before, but yesterday we kind of did it in earnest. If we don't have the original manuscripts, can we be sure that they've been reliably preserved? That is one of the big questions that people ask. How do we know that when we open our Bibles, we have the authentic message? How do we know that when we read Paul, we're reading the words that he actually put on the parchment, you know, 20 centuries ago? Can we have a lot of confidence in that? Because there are a lot of people increasingly who are saying, no, you you can't have any confidence in that at all. Those manuscripts crumbled to dust ages ago And so you have a translation of a copy 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 of a copy. And so the original message is just hopelessly lost. Well, that's simply not true. You can't have all the confidence in the world that you have the original message of the the Bible writers. As we said yesterday, and you saw this slide if you were here, when it comes to the New Testament, it really, as an ancient book, it is really in a class all by itself. There's no other ancient book like it in all the world. When people say, well, how do we know that it's been copied accurately? Well, it's because we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and uh, there is no other ancient book that uh, is even in this class. Let me give you one example. I mentioned this yesterday. I'll go back to it real quickly, Uh, and this is the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus was a Roman senator. He was also a Roman historian, lived the late 1st century, early 2nd century And much of what we know about Roman life in the late first century or in the first century and the second century comes from him. And it comes from this work he did that uh, that was at least 16 volumes that we know of called Annals of Imperial Rome. And uh, there's really no historian today that if they're reading Tacitus and they're reading his Annals of Imperial Rome to learn about first century Roman life, nobody says, well, how do we know that he really wrote that? How can we be confident? Well, it's because, you know, we have copies of his, uh, of, uh, ancient copies of this, this writing. Well, the question then is, well, how many do we have? Well, you can see on the screen how many we have. In books 1 through 6, there's one. There's just one copy. Books 7 through 10 have been lost to history. Nobody's ever saw those books. Books 11 through 16, there's one ancient manuscript. By the way, that one copy of books 1 through 6, as you see there, it dates to about 850. That's about 750 years after he wrote it. And so you have this 750-year gap between the time he wrote it and the first copy that we have. But no historian says, well, how do we know during those 750 years that it was copied accurately? Nobody does that. We just know it is. And so nobody really questions Tacitus. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, as we said yesterday, it's in a class all by itself. And so how many ancient copies do we really have? Well, somewhere around 25,000. Now, uh, you're going to see varying numbers here. Sometimes you're going to see people say, well, there's about 30,000. The fact of the matter is... Uh, we really don't know with precision. It's somewhere between 25 and 30,000. There's still manuscripts that are being counted, and there's always things that are being newly discovered. But let's just go on the low end and say we have about 25,000 ancient manuscripts. Now, let me make sure you understand what I mean when I talk about manuscripts. I'm talking about ancient handwritten copies. You know, before Gutenberg inter- uh, uh, changed the world by inventing the printing press, everything had to be copied by hand. And so when we talk about manuscripts, we're talking about ancient handwritten copies. Now here's how that breaks down. This is really important to understand. Uh, When we talk about the New Testament, of course, we're talking about a document that was originally written in the Greek language. And so when it comes to ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament uh, or or parts of the New Testament, we have almost 6,000 ancient manuscripts. In the original Greek language, and then we have about twenty-four, twenty-five thousand or so. Uh, and again, this shows that you know the way it's totaled here is about thirty thousand. Uh, but we have uh, all kinds of translations in all kinds of languages: Old Latin, the Latin Vulgate, Old Syriac. As Scripture was copied, and as as the Church and as the Christian community expanded and went into different geographical places, and and, and churches were planted in different places. the word was translated, and so we have all these ancient translations of the scripture. and so we have this massive amount of, uh, uh, of ancient manuscripts, and they date anywhere from really the late first century, second century, all the way up to you know the invention of the printing press in the sixteenth century. Let me just show you a couple of uh, interesting uh, fragments of uh, some of the oldest copies of the New Testament or portions of the New Testament that we have. This is probably the oldest. It's called P52. It's just about three inches high, just a tiny little fragment from John's Gospel. On one side is verses 31 through 33. On the other side is verses 37 through 38. This dates to about somewhere between 100 A.D. and about 125 Now, there are some, there's at least one expert in the study of ancient papyrus, and that's what the material that this fragment was written on. Uh, And I may have mentioned it, you know, these are some of our earliest manuscripts were written on papyrus, which is a a tough piece of paper that was made from the reed that grew in the, the, the marsh of the Nile Delta. And, uh, you know, they're not real durable, but in some places like in the climate of Egypt, they can last a long time. And so most of these documents that we have that are written on papyrus come from places like Egypt and have been found there. Uh, but this dates from about 100 to 125. One expert in papyrus studies uh, suggests that it may come from the late first century, maybe about 90, maybe about the time John was writing the book of Revelation. So we got some really, really, really old copies or fragments of copies of the New Testament that almost go back to the first generation of Christians. Here's a significant portion of the Gospel of John. There's a few places that are missing that have been lost, but this is a, uh, this is a copy of the Gospel of John. Now look where it dates back to. This dates back to around the year 200. Now let me make sure you understand how close that is to the first generation of Christians. Uh, This was probably being circulated and being read by people who knew people who could have potentially knew John, really. I mean, hundred. if we're talking about the year 200 and we're talking about, uh, you know, the last New Testament book written at the end of the first century, you're looking at, you know, maybe 100, 125 years since the last New Testament book was written, now, that sounds like a pretty big gap, but it's not. I'm, I was reminded of that a few years ago when I went to visit this little old lady at, this, at a church that I used to preach for. It was back probably around the year 2000 that I went to see her. And she was knocking on 100. And so, uh, so I go in to visit her, and uh, go in to see her, and she still has this really sharp mind. And I'm looking at some of the old pictures on her wall. And, uh, and I see this guy with a, a hole in his head. Uh, he's an old guy. And he's got this hole in his forehead. And, uh, and he has this suit on. And, you know, it's a really, really, really old picture. And I go, wow, who's this? And what's the deal with the hole in the head? And he said, she said, that's my dad. And uh, that's where a Yankee shot him during the Civil War. And I said, are you serious? Your dad? Dad? was a Confederate soldier and fought in the war? She said, yeah, he was shot in the head. holding never went away, but he survived it. Went on to live a long life. Had her real late in life. And so I'm standing here in about the year 2000, and I'm talking to a woman whose father fought for the Confederacy, was shot by a Yankee like 140 years earlier. How about that? By the way, he was killed when a tractor rolled over on him in a farm accident. Uh, when he was really, really, really old. Uh, So, you know, you think about that. And so that's why I say, you know, when we look at documents like this, a copy of the Gospel of John that dates from about the year 200, we're talking about people who could really have potentially known others who knew the Apostle John, or at least lived while John was living. And so we are really, really, really close to the original writings of Scripture. Scripture. Uh, if you ever go to Dublin, Ireland, you can go to the Chester Beattie Library and they have just this amazing collection of Paul's letters. All of Paul's letters, uh, also the book of Hebrews, uh, but the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they, they don't have a copy of that. But these also date to about the same time, very beginning of the 3rd century, very late 2nd century. And so, again, we're talking about copies of the New Testament writings that are very, very close to the first generation of Christians. We're talking about second or third generation of Christians at most. This is a copy of the earliest surviving complete New Testament. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. It dates to the 4th century, middle 300s. Um, Great story behind this, by the way, in terms of its discovery. It was discovered by a man, uh, someone mentioned just before class, someone came up and mentioned a guy named Tischendorf, Konstantin von Tischendorf. Well, he was the guy who discovered this. He lived in the 19th century. This manuscript was actually discovered in 1844, and it's called Codex Sinaiticus. Now, the reason is, if you were here yesterday, I explained what a codex is. A codex just means it's a book form. That's when, uh, you know, codex about the time of Christ started replacing the scrolls. People took scrolls and they cut up the pages and they put them together and they sold it together and suddenly you have book form for the first time. And so that's what codex means. Sinaiticus indicates really where it was discovered. There's a monastery that was built, at least the beginnings of the monastery was uh, about the 6th century in the 500s in the uh, Sinai Peninsula uh, at the foot of a mountain, one of the traditional sites of Mount Sinai. And so it was discovered there, that uh, that monastery. Guy who discovered it, Constantine von Tischendorf, was uh, He was this expert in ancient manuscripts. He was interested in him. He traveled the world to, to find manuscripts. And so he went to St. Catherine's Monastery, and in 1844, he saw some of the monks, and uh, there was this little stove. And uh, he noticed that the fuel that they were using for the fire of that stove was a basket of ancient manuscripts. yeah and so they're tossing ancient manuscripts in there to fire their stove. Well, he took a look at it, and he recognized that uh, that's that's New Testament writing, and so he tried to contain his enthusiasm, but that was really hard to do, and uh, asked if he could possibly take some of that back to his room to take a gander at it, and uh Like I said, he kind of tried to contain his enthusiasm, but it it showed through and some of the monks started getting suspicious. Hey, maybe this stuff's worth something. And uh, it's kind of a long story from there how he finally got his hands on it and uh, and, and then got it out and, and the czar of Russia was... Uh, one of his supporters and so it ultimately became a gift to the Tsar of russia he, he borrowed it and promised to bring it back to the monastery there it's never returned to the monastery and then in the 20th century when russia was going through some really hard times economically they sold it to sold it to the british museum for a hundred thousand pounds it is a priceless document and uh, today if you go to the british museum in london you can see kodak Sinaiticus, the oldest complete copy of the greek new testament in existence today uh, so I wanted you to just see a few of these, um, uh, manuscripts that we have. So, so here's how we can have such confidence because we've got so many. And so we can, uh, you know, we, we look at the copies from the 1500s and we look at the copies from the 1400s and the 1300s and the 1200s and the 900s and the 700s and the 600s and the 400s and the 200s. And we compare them. And then we look at all the translations that come from different centuries in all the different languages and, and they all read the same, And so when it comes to the question, hey, can we really know that the New Testament has been reliably preserved? The answer is, yeah, we can really know. How can we know? Because we've got so many manuscripts from late 1st century, most 2nd century, uh, all the way through the 16th century. So enormous. It, It is, as some scholars say, it is almost an embarrassment of riches that New Testament scholars have because there are so many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Well, then that raises this question. Here's the next question that a lot of people often ask. Well, what about all the errors in the New Testament? I hear there's a ton of errors. And again, those who are trying to undermine the integrity of Scripture and you read their works, so they'll really emphasize this. First of all, they try to emphasize that the whole process of transmission has been corrupted. Well, we put that to rest by, saying, by recognizing that there's you know, thousands of manuscripts that date back from, you know, the 200s all the way up. And, uh, and we talked yesterday about how meticulous scribes were. Scribes were really conscious about what they were doing. And they were invested in Christianity as well, most of them. And so, uh, you know, they, they really took serious uh, their task. And so when you put all that together, you can't argue that somehow scribes mangled the message of the New Testament. By the way, you always need to keep in mind as we talk about all of this... You need to always keep in mind God's providence as well. You know, God really loves you. He's crazy about you. You know that, right? He is absolutely crazy about you. Uh, More than anything, he wants to spend eternity with you. And so since the very beginning when man rebelled, even before man rebelled, when God decided to create and he made that decision to create, uh... All past, all present, all future suddenly in his consciousness and he knows that man is going to rebel. And from the very foundations of the world, he had already hatched a rescue plan. It's all about you and it's all about me. He wants to save us. And then he goes through the process of, of sending the solution to our problem, Christ. And he goes to the cross for us and it's all about us. Now, do you really think, and then he supervises the original writers of the New Testament to make sure that every word that they wrote were the words that he wanted written. Now, do you think after that that God just completely dropped the ball and stepped completely out of the picture and, uh, and, and left everything then to the whims of humanity? Uh, do you really think that? No. Uh, God is going to somehow, now, all those who copied the manuscripts and circulated the manuscripts they weren't inspired in the same way that the apostles were obviously but you have to know that god's providence is involved in this to ensure that what he did for us through christ and our condition outside of christ that that message has gotten to us because he wants us with him for all of eternity and so don't ever forget god's providence in all this uh, well, then that leads us, as I said, to this question that a lot of people ask. Well, I heard there's thousands of errors. Some say 200,000 errors. You'll see some sources that say, no, no, no. There's like 400,000 errors in the New Testament. Okay, when you hear that or if someone asks you that, you know, what about all the errors? I hear there's like tens and tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of errors. Uh, they're, they're using a loaded term with error, you know. That sounds so ominous and uh and so don't let the term throw you what people mean when they're talking about an error we have to understand what some people mean when they use that word and most people who use that word you know that they don't have a high view of scripture and they're actually trying to undermine people's confidence in it if they throw the word error out that's what they're trying to do uh what an error basically is, it's any variation between the ancient manuscripts, the ancient Greek manuscripts that we have. Now, what that means is this. Basically, here's how it works. When scholars get together these 5,800 plus and, and, and counting, these 5,800 plus ancient manuscripts that were handwritten uh, in the original Greek language, what they do is they, 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 they compare them. They basically lay them out side by side, and they go through... Uh, line for line, word for word, letter for letter, and they compare it all. And everywhere there is even the tiniest difference between those manuscripts, they document that. And that's called a variation. That's all it is. So a lot of people, when they're talking about, uh, you know, and they use that term errors, what they're talking about is variance, where these texts vary in the different places. Um so the question then becomes well are there really tens of thousands of variations between the existing Greek New Testament manuscript and the answer is yeah there really are tens of thousands now the first thing that you have to know though about that is there's such a large number because of how variations are counted and because we have such a enormous number of manuscripts almost 6000 well here's how they count variations if one word is misspelled, you know, and and, and and that misspelled word is like copied, just for argument's sake, it's copied 5,000 times, well, then that's suddenly 5,000 variants. One word misspelled 5,000 times. So we have such a huge number of copies uh, of, of manuscripts and then the way that they count variants. So yeah, there's a lot of variations. But the second thing that we need to understand is We always have to uh, explain the difference between quality and quantity. You know, don't panic at the sound of tens of thousands of variants. The number really doesn't matter. What we really want to know is this. Where the text differs, does it change the meaning of the text? That's what we want to know. And so that's where the issue really lies. And so when we talk about variations then, we're talking about three categories of variants. Of all of these variants that exist, about 75% of those are just, you know, slips of the pen. They're just things like uh, differences in spelling, differences in the spelling of a proper name or it might be uh, one of the most common variants among the New Testament is what uh, scholars call a, a movable new. Uh, we, it's like an N that, that attaches to the end of certain words. And, and, uh, and you'll see that a lot in ancient manuscripts. It's kind of like our article A and an, And sometimes folks don't know when it should be an with an N or A without an N. It's kind of that kind of stuff, and so when we talk about all these variants, seventy-five percent of the variants are things like that. They're meaningless. They're easily detectable to the trained eye. It becomes so obvious; it has no significance at all to the text. Seventy-five percent of the variations. Well, you may be wondering, well, well, why in the world? How in the, did this happen? As scribes are you know, copying and and they've got the copy sitting right here and they're looking, you know, uh, it's right there and and they're just moving the pen over to the paper beside them. How can you possibly make errors, any errors? Well, don't forget they're human beings. I don't know if you've ever tried this, by the way, of copying. We did a project, our youth minister, a couple of years ago at Concord Road back in Nashville. Uh, It was called Project 360, and he got a lot of volunteers and a lot of the youth group and a lot of the parents were involved and we copied the New Testament. And uh, and then after we copied the New Testament in, in our own hand, then all of that was put together and in a hard bound book. And so uh, it's a really neat, neat project we did. Excuse me. Somebody from Florida. I forgot to silence my phone. I will, uh, whoops. Sorry about that. That wasn't very professional, was it? Uh, I'm trying to turn my ringer off now and not being very successful at that. Uh, But uh, I keep taking a screenshot of it. Okay, there we go. There. Now I hit the right button. Okay. Where was I? What was I talking about? uh, Oh, yeah, Project 360. So I had like five chapters from John that I was assigned. And so I sat down and we copied it from the ESV. And so how hard is that? Five Five chapters from John. And Patty is, uh, Patty Flanagan was our youth minister. And Patty said, uh, you know, instructions were, listen, if you make a mistake, don't worry about it. Just uh, put a single line through it. Don't try to, you know, erase it or anything. Put a single line through it and, and then just correct it. Well, I'm like, well, I'm not going to make a mistake. <laughs> I mean, how hard is this? How hard is it? Listen, I can't tell you. I probably made six or seven mistakes. I got so frustrated and, uh, and I didn't want to put lines through it because I knew everybody was going to look at this once it was all bound together. And I didn't want them to see Dan putting a bunch of lines through things. And so I got the white out. And, uh, you know, I tried to cover up my errors. Uh, but it was some, it, it's just being human, no matter how careful y- you are. And, and when we talk about scribes in, in these early centuries copying manuscripts... They had to deal with a lot of things that we don't have to deal with. Things like vision problems that some would have, uh, like astigmatism, stigmatism. And, and, you know, glasses are not, not going to be invented for till about the 1400. And, uh, and so you have to deal with realities like that. Uh, these manuscripts would oftentimes be faded and sometimes be tough. to. Is this a, uh, an A or is this an E? Or, and, and you can't quite make it out. I picked up a, a lock the other day. I found in one of our drawers a master lock. And I was going to take it to the Y and start using Lock My Locker. Uh, the, and, uh, and so the combination was on back of the lock. There was a sticker there from when we had bought it. And it was a long time ago. And, and I had trouble reading the first number. Is that a three? Or is that an eight? It just, it just faded over time. And so I said, well, I'll try three and then I'll try eight. And it happened to be three. But I had trouble making it out. Well, as these copies of the New Testament would be circulated and scribes would get their hands on them, sometimes you'd have faded manuscripts that they're trying to copy from. Other times, you know, they're copying from manuscripts. Maybe the ink has faded away or, or poor lighting. I had great lighting in my office, so I don't have any excuse about poor lighting, but they're there with an oil lamp or a candle. And, and then there's the occasional inattentiveness. Look, they're human beings. You know, no matter how much I was focused on copying those first five chapters of John for our Project 360, you know, the mind kind of wonders and you just, you're, you know, you're, you, you get zeroed in and you just kind of back off that a little bit. And and then sometimes your, the scribe's memory can play tricks on it. This happened to me a couple of times. As you're writing and you read, okay, you read a sentence and you get over there and you start writing it And you, you know, you may change the word order that you don't exactly remember, and it gets a little bit shifted. Uh, Or sometimes, and I did this once. What the last bullet statement is there? I inadvertently skipped one line as I'm as I'm reading through John and one of the chapters, and I wrote, you know, copied that line, and then I went back over. I accidentally left out an entire line once, and so these are some of the reasons. People, how could there be any problems? Well, this is how there can be problems. But they're not major problems, and that's what we see. So 75% of these so-called errors, which aren't really errors at all, bad word, loaded word, these variants, 75% of them mean nothing. But then you've got about 25% of the variants that are meaningful. It's not just, you know, a a misspelled word, uh, but the text meaning doesn't change at all. And any good Bible these days will point these things out to you. Let me give you some examples. Ephesians chapter 1. I just pulled this one out. Uh, This is from a, a, I forget, I think it's the the New American Standard Inductive Study Bible. I just Xeroxed a copy of Ephesians chapter 1. If you'll look at it, like I said, most modern Bibles today will tell you when there are variants among the manuscripts. If you don't know about this, then it'll help you because I, you may have some friends sometimes who say, what does this mean in the in the mark? What does this footnote mean? It'll help you and your credibility with them if you oh, this is what that means. Uh, but if you look at Ephesians chapter one, here is an example. Now, the variations, those 75% of those variations that are meaningless, misspelled words, they're not going to point those out to you. They're so obvious, they don't mean anything. But they are going to point out where there are significant variants. But watch how insignificant most of these are. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And you'll see that footnote 3 beside at Ephesus. And so if you're like me, you go, huh, I wonder what that footnote says. And so you go over to the column, and you see, you look for three under verse one, and it says, three early MSS, now if you haven't known what that means before, let me tell you what it means. MSS is an abbreviation for manuscripts. That's what it means. And what that means is ancient, handwritten copies of the book of Ephesians in the original Greek language that's what that means and so they're telling you of all the ancient handwritten copies of the book of Ephesians in the Greek language that we have in existence when they are compared laid side by side and examined line for line word for word and letter for letter three of those do not contain the words at Ephesus oh no can we trust the Bible What are we going to do now? It doesn't change the meaning of the text. Sure, that's called a significant variation. It goes down as significant, but it doesn't affect the meaning of the text at all. Nothing to worry about. Well, keep going down. Still going down in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse fifteen. For this reason, I too, Paul says, having heard of the faith of in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. I'll make you mention of you in my prayers. Aha! There is another footnote there. And so, you being the scholar that you are, you being the meticulous Bible student that you are, you go down to verse fifteen, and you see. Three early MSS, and, and you know what that means. And when your friend says to you, what does that mean? You go, oh, let me explain to you what that means.
1: What that means
0: is, uh, MSS is an abbreviation for manuscripts, and that's referring to all the ancient handwritten copies of the book of Ephesians in the original Greek language. And your friend will go, wow, oh. And then you'll say, and what this is telling us is that of all the ancient handwritten copies of the book of Ephesians, uh, in the Greek language, three of them don't contain the word, those words, your love. Three of them. Of all of them that exist, three of them don't contain those words in verse 15. Oh no! That completely changes the message of Ephesians. We might as well just chuck the Bible now and go do our own thing. No! It's meaningless. It doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. Well, why is it in here? Well, because three ancient manuscripts don't have those two words, and they're going to let you know that, that there's a variant there. But all the others contain it. And so when all these specialists get together and they're evaluating and studying and meticulously going through the text, uh, there's enough support to say, yeah, probably your love was part of the original manuscript of Paul. Even though three ancient manuscripts don't contain the words your love, it just says... Uh, having heard of the faith of the Lord and Jesus which exists among you and for all the saints. So, uh, so that's an example of that. Okay, then we get to this. So now look where we're at. We're at 99% of the variations that you'll find in all the ancient handwritten copies of the Greek New Testament. 99% now are either insignificant completely, 75% of them are. The other 24% are considered significant, and you've just seen examples of that that really are meaningless to the text. They don't have any significant impact to the meaning of the text. Well, what about that last 1%? Let's look at that last 1%. There's about 1% that are meaningful, and they do affect the text meaning. Uh, but the interesting thing about this, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, is that it, it may affect the text meaning a little bit, but it doesn't affect any central doctrine of the text. Let me give you an example. John chapter 5. We'll blow it up here for you. After these things, there was a feast. Oh, there's a word, there's a footnote there. I'm going to check it out. And it says there, many MSS. Oh, okay, I know what that means. Many manuscripts. So, not just three, but there's several that don't contain a feast. There are several that contains the feast, that's considered a significant, that's category two, that's part of the 25%. A lot of manuscripts don't say a feast, it says the feast. And again, you can see that doesn't have any significant bearing on the meaning of the text whatsoever. That's category two, but we keep reading down now. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up, and there was in Jerusalem by the sheep uh, gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, but having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, whoever then first, after the stirring of the, up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, you'll see in most Bibles what you see here in front of you. And that is there's a bracket there. You go, oh, there's a bracket at the end of verse 3, starting with waiting for the moving of the water, and a bracket at the end of verse chapter or verse four and so you're going to go down to your footnotes then and you're going to see that it says many manuscripts do not contain this section so that's more than a word that's a chunk that's a verse and a half many ancient manuscripts don't contain this in fact uh, uh, the oldest manuscripts we have this does not appear anywhere some translations may not even include this today. Some translations, and you might have one of those where it takes this part and it just takes it out of the text and it might put it in a footnote down there and say, hey, a few a few manuscripts have this. But this is one of those. This is that 1%. This is a, a major difference. Uh, but... There's enough evidence for us to know that, no, that's not part of the ancient text. That's, that wasn't part of what John originally wrote. That's why it's bracketed and that's why it said that. Well, how do we know it's not part of what John wrote? Well, because we got copies of copies of copies of copies. And when we go back to the oldest manuscript, this doesn't appear for centuries. Uh, 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 the first few centuries of Christianity before this shows up in a text. And then think about the character of that. I mean, think about that story. I mean, honestly, think about that. Does that sound like God? The God you know? That he played this game with people in Jerusalem? That all the sick people would come to the pool of Bethesda and they'd all sit around and they'd just wait because God played play a little game with them. And occasionally he'd send an angel down there and he'd stir up the water and first one in gets a healing. Everybody else, you're out of luck. Does that even sound like God? Now, what probably happened here, and most scholars say this, is a well-meaning scribe, when he came across this text, probably in a marginal note, tried to offer an explanation. Because as you're just reading this, and it says, as John's writing this, and he says, a multitude were laying by the pool of Bethesda, and a certain man was there. The question would come up in the reader's mind, this well-meaning scribe would say, well, why would they be laying there? Because the text doesn't explain that. Why would they be? And so some well-meaning scribe probably knew the tradition. Because something happened there at the Pool of Bethesda where there was natural gas bubbling up or a spring or something there and occasionally made bubbles. And and uh, and that tradition, that, that superstition, perpetuated itself. And that's why people gathered there. We say, well, how could they possibly, how could such a, a superstition persist for years? Well, it's easy. I mean, if you've got a bunch of sick people sitting around and there's a little bubbling in the water, who's going to be the first one in? The healthiest person there. It's going to be me with my little sinus headache this morning. Okay? It ain't going to be you in a wheelchair. Uh, it's not going to be the paralyzed man who's been there th- paralyzed for 38 years. And so that's how these kind of things perpetuate. So what probably happened here was a well-meaning scribe kind of explained to the readers. John just says, they're by the pool of Bethesda and there's a certain man there that 's how it probably got its way into the text. This is part of that one percent of significant variance that uh, impacts the text, but again doesn 't change the overall meaning of the doctrine. any doctrine no doctrine is in jeopardy with this. Let me show you another one real quick now we 're almost out of time. John chapter seven okay this is uh, this is the um, uh, the end of verse fifty three And and you go all the way, if you get to verse 53, you see your footnote there, you see a bracket there. It says, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman. Um, We talked about this during the Lord's Supper. David used this, and he even pointed out. And uh, this doesn't appear to about the 7th century in 7th century manuscripts. Before that, this doesn't appear anywhere. And so scholars uh, are pretty much universal in their assessment that this was not an original part uh of the gospel and um and so you know it is a um um it goes all the way through chapter verse 11 so you're looking at about 11 or 12 verses there uh one of the things david i remember y'all pointed out on sunday when we were all here was that one of the things also that we know it doesn't appear before the seventh century in the manuscript we know that Uh, so it appears really really late Uh, and the vocabulary as scholars who know the language and are experts in the language they it doesn't match John's vocabulary it matches Luke's vocabulary and uh, so it probably wasn't a part of John's original gospel but uh, but what do we do about this text is is it not authentic well it's not authentic to John's gospel but as David said and I totally agree with him uh, that this probably is very much uh, a historical event in the life of the ministry of Christ. Remember, John said, look, you don't have, we don't have space to write down everything that Jesus did. <laughs> if, if we tried to write down everything Jesus did, I mean, the world wouldn't contain enough volumes. I mean, the, there wouldn't be space available for it. And so it was probably, and, and we can't get into all the technicalities of it, but uh, this story has been traced to a very, very early date and probably was a very, very true, authentic moment in the life of the ministry of Christ. And one thing we know for sure, unlike the text that we just looked at in John chapter 5, where he said, that's not how God works. We look at this and we say, that is totally consistent with the life and the ministry and the person of Christ. There is nothing in this story that contradicts or in any way conflicts the personality of Christ, the nature of Christ, and the ministry of Christ. And so, uh, even though it's not a part of John's original gospel... Uh, I I absolutely believe, because it's very consistent with the life and the ministry of Christ, to be an authentic episode. But again, it doesn't change. Nothing's in jeopardy there in terms of any central doctrine. Uh, We're we're getting out of time. It's 15 till I wanted to go to Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. Uh, It's called the long ending. You'll see it in your Bibles. It's bracketed, or there may be a space between verses 8 and 9. It says, hey, a lot of early manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20, and that's what it says here in the footnote. Uh, and uh, what I would say about that is that the long ending of Mark was that part of Mark's original gospel, and I see the red light flashing. That means uh, we got to go, so I will wind it up with this. Uh, I I like how Neil Lightfoot describes it, and and Brother Lightfoot's book, How We Got the Bible, is still one of the best out there. If you don't have it, you want to get that on your shelf. You can just go to Amazon and get it, Uh, and uh, like he said, the problem with this text, it's a little bit different. It's not like First John 5, 7 or Acts eight thirty seven or John seven fifty three through 8, 1. It's not like those. There's enough evidence on those passages for scholars to say, yeah, uh, these things weren't part of the original text. When it comes to Mark 16, the ending there, he says, it's a little bit different. You have the evidence that really points both ways. And you'll see entire books written on it. Here's a book I have in my shelf where an entire book written by four people give their perspective on the ending of Mark but I like what Brother Lightfoot says, and this will be the last one that we look at. Whatever's the correct view about the ending of Mark, it's important to note that the truthfulness of this passage is not in dispute. There's nothing that you'll find in Mark 16 that you can't find anywhere else in the New Testament, except the drinking of deadly poison. That's the only thing. Everything else is, uh, is found in the other Gospels of the book of Acts. And like he says, the main events there are recorded elsewhere, so at any rate, we're not in danger of forfeiting anything. And so here's what the summary, summary statement. Here you go. The New Testament manuscripts agree in about 99.5%. When people say thousands and thousands and thousands of errors, you know that ain't true. What you're talking about is variations in the text. Most of them overwhelmingly. 75% of them are just like slips of the pen. Errors in spelling don't mean anything. 24% of them are uh, what you've seen. Uh, A word or two, but nothing more than that. Less than 1% are substantial, like we just looked at this morning. That's about it. And uh, they don't have any real bearing on Christian doctrine whatsoever. Can you trust the Bible? You bet you can trust the Bible. And we need to be prepared, as I said, as we face more and more people who just are skeptics or, or just don't have a Bible background. And when we talk to them and they're asking, and we ask the question, is the Bible really a God book? Do you believe it? And they say, well, I just really don't know. We need to be prepared to help bring them to an understanding that the Bible is a very special and unique book from God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time we've had together. You're so good to us. We are most thankful as we contemplate the Bible that you have brought to us your thoughts in words that we can understand, that you have explained our condition, you've explained your solution to our problem, and Father, we cherish your word. We pray that we will embrace it, we pray that we will uh, uh, study it and meditate on it and cherish it and that we will share the great truths with others. And so, Father, we pray that we'll have boldness as we take your word to the world. And it is in the name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Amen.